Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. broadcast today on Words of Grace is entitled, Some Lessons from the Storm. I had a rather unusual week last week, to say the least. Here in North Alabama, we experienced what was supposed to be a mild snowstorm, but because of some unusual weather patterns, specifically a pocket of warm air between the clouds and the 20-something degree ground, We ended up having inches of sleet accumulate that formed a nicely packed layer of white icy sleet that looked like snow. Now this is nothing new to anyone who lives here, but suffice it to say North Alabama isn't the most equipped to deal with that sort of precipitation. In fact, it basically would have taken around the clock snow plowing to get that off of the roads and Motor graders were inferior to deal with it. We salted the roads up here in advance, and that didn't prevent the accumulation because of inches of sleet, again, being dropped on the roads and our yards. So what that effectively did was completely shut down North Alabama, ending all of the plans that anyone and everyone had scheduled for their week. We all experienced collectively a full five or six days of cabin fever. We were all confined to wherever we were when that landed until it finally melted, which was later Sunday evening into Monday morning of this week. On today's broadcast, I want to reflect on that, and I will concede up front that this is going to be a little different than the normal broadcasts that we share with you in which we expound upon portions of Scripture. But I believe this is relevant to our lives, and if you get the main points that I'm going to share with you today, I think they'll be a blessing to you. 
The first of those points has to do with the fact that you and I make plans. There are things in this world that we purpose in our mind and in our hearts to do. And because of circumstances, situations that are outside of our control, those plans fall through. How should we react to that? Well, we hope to share that with you today. And also some thoughts that I meditated upon during the effects of that ice storm, that snow, looking out at my yard as if it were a frozen tundra. In other words, as the heavens declare the glory of God, what sort of a lesson can you and I derive from that weather pattern? When we look out at that snowy, frozen tundra, what can we learn about the Lord, about ourselves, about His sovereignty, as we look out and see the world existing in such an unprecedented, for us, state of being? The first point that I want to share with you today regards our plans. This past week was one that was full of plans for me personally. There were somewhere around a dozen lessons that I was going to teach my students if they were able to be there, if they were in good health and had nothing interrupt their plans to be there. I was supposed to produce a radio program, and I was unable to make it here to our studio, and so we used a pre-recorded program, a rerun as it were, and that was Only the second time in 16 years of broadcasting that we have played a true rerun for you on the air. The good thing about having 16 years worth of content is that I can reach back a few years and use one that might not be as noticeable as a more recent broadcast. But the plans to record and produce the radio program fell through. There was a Wednesday afternoon devotion in a nearby town that I was to lead, but I couldn't lead that devotion because of the storm that we experienced that was canceled as school was canceled and everyone was confined to their homes. At least two rehearsals that I was going to attend were canceled because of that storm. And as far as dad life, my son's high school wind ensemble was to perform at the Alabama Music Educators Association. He was going to be performing with the Allstate Jazz Band. Those are a lot of plans. I just rattled off to you the away-from-home things that I was going to be doing that week, and every single one of those plans fell through. What was your week supposed to look like? Did you have doctor's appointments that you had to cancel? Did you have lunches with friends that you were not able to make? You We're not able probably to make it to work some or perhaps all of that week. That could have impacted your income. It could have affected many things about your productivity. You might have to work overtime and extra to make up for the time that was lost in that storm. If you live up here in North Alabama and you were affected by that, we all have plans each and every day. And that's a good thing. After all, Scripture commends a man that sits down and tallies up the cost and plans everything out before he engages in a project, because it's better to plan out what you're going to do in advance to know if you can complete it than start on it and actually not finish it. It's good to be a person who plans. However, sometimes our plans fall through because we do not know what the future holds. This is a point that James would make in the book of James chapter 4, and that's really one of the main points that I want to share with you today. 
James will say, Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, and continue there a year, and buy, and sell, and get gain. Now, if you paid attention to the reading of that verse, you noticed that these people are engaging in a lot of plan-making. We're going to go into a city, and we're going to continue there a full year. Well, you might, you might not. You may end up going somewhere else. You may not make it into the city. You may pass away in the midst of the year. You may make it two weeks into the year and have a devastating disease and have to move back home. But notice what else this type of person is saying. Go to you that say today or tomorrow we'll go into a city and continue their year and buy and sell and get gain. Not only is this presumptuous person, this hypothetical person that James is rebuking in James chapter 4, so bold as to say how long he's going to stay there, but he even says, we are going to buy and sell, and we're going to get gain. Now, by the way, you might go in there and try to buy something, Mr. Hypothetical Boaster, but who's to say that you're going to sell and get gain? That is assuming an awful lot. What if there's no one there who wants to buy the product that you're selling? You're going to sell and get gain. What if you can't find supply? What if you can't produce a product that anyone wants? Either because the product that you created is faulty, or perhaps it's a wonderful product, but there's just no demand for it, and so no one buys it. There's so much presumption in this statement that this hypothetical person James is rebuking makes. So much presumption. We're going to go there. We're going to stay a year. We're going to buy. We're going to sell. And what's the last thing? We're going to get gain. We're going to get wealthy. We're going to line our pockets as our plans come together. But then James turns around and he says, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, you don't even know what's going to happen in a day. How can you say that you know what is going to happen in a year? Well, the fact of the matter is, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen a year from now. We can make the best plans in the world, and so many times those fall through. As James would say, what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. Our lives are short little vapors of smoke. And as he says here, it vanisheth away. It disappears. It's here for a moment, and it is gone. What should we take from James' exhortation here? Well, we ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live, or do this, or that. But these sorts of presumptuous declarations of buying and selling and getting gain over the course of a year, James actually says that this sort of rejoicing is evil. This sort of boasting is actually evil. It's not a good thing. It's not of the Lord. And it's not something that we ought to be doing. The Christian is to always be saying, if it is the Lord's will, I will do this or I will do that. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven is to be our prayer and one of our main slogans. Now, tying this in to the recent ice storm, snowstorm, sleet storm that we had up here in North Alabama, none of us, though we knew through models that we were going to get some snow, I don't think any of us could have predicted the impact that that particular storm had, where it shut our city down for several, several days. It began on Sunday night. It continued through the day Monday. We wake up Tuesday, and it looks like Alaska outside. The roads are covered. The drives are covered. The lawns are covered. The cars are covered. 
everything is covered in this thick, densely packed layer of accumulated sleet. We didn't know what a day would bring, let alone the rest of that week. And I tell you, by the end of that week, I was ready to stand outside and scream at the stuff to melt so we could get back to doing some of the things that we wanted to do. There was great inconvenience in that for a lot of people. And I think the young kids enjoyed it a whole lot as they got to stay out of school for several days and play outside in the cold weather. But as much as my kids love outside, by the end of that week, they were happy to be inside where it was warm and not outside in that anymore. But that is a great example about how you and I can make all the plans in the world. We can do our very best to prepare all of the things that I mentioned, the lessons, the rehearsals, that conference with the music I was going to hear, the radio production for that week, all of those things that we had planned out and charted out, it all fell through because there was something greater happening in the world that was out of our hands to control. And so what we should say then is, well, Lord willing, this is my plan, and that's not lip service, that's what we're to really mean. If it is God's will that this thing goes forward, well... Lord willing, we will do this sort of thing. And so point number one, from the storm that we experienced, we should always admit and confess our own frailty, our inability to understand the future, and we should always add, if the Lord wills, to the statements that we make expressing the plans that we have in the world. We should not boast in an evil way bragging about buying and selling and getting gain and all the other things that we endeavor to do. Point number two for today's broadcast, and this will be a threefold point. As I was contained in my house and occasionally would go hiking around my neighborhood and sledding with the kids, as I got to witness the world covered in this ice and this snow, it brought to mind several passages of Scripture that talk about ice and that talk about snow. In fact, our live stream from this past Sunday, because we were not able to meet in person, our live stream was about passages of the Bible that revealed to us things about the Lord, using snow or ice or the cold as a word picture or an example. The first example of that that I want to share has to do with God's holiness and God's glory. In Revelation chapter 1, as John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day on the Isle of Patmos, where he had been exiled, he sees the Lord. He sees the risen Christ. And as he looks at Christ, the Lord says to him, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, what thou seest, write in a book, send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. John turns and he sees one standing in the midst of these seven golden candlesticks, which represent the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this one is like unto the Son of Man, meaning he looks like a human being. The one that he sees is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the faithful witness, the one that washed us from our sins in his own blood, the one that made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, the one who has ascended to glory and yet is coming again. He sees Christ and... Christ is described as, and listen to this, because there's going to be a reference to snow here, and it communicates in a word picture some truth about our God. In the midst of these seven golden candlesticks is one like unto the Son of Man. This is the resurrected Lord, 
He is verily God. He is verily man. He is deity, but yet he's also humanity, yet without sin. He is ascended up to glory, and John sees him. He's clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his feet were as a flame of fire. Now, the reason that he's depicted his clothing and his head and his hairs as being white as snow, I believe, is because he radiates glory. For instance, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is described as shining so brightly, bright like the noonday sun, bright like the lightning, that his garments were whiter than any fuller's soap could make them. He glows so brightly that the garments that he's wearing, the clothing that he's wearing, is bleached out from the light and made totally white, regardless of what color these garments were prior to the transfiguration. And you can turn to Mark 9.3 and read an example of this. Have you ever taken a bright flashlight and put it behind fabric? The light from that is so very bright that it really doesn't matter what color the garment is. You're going to see the whiteness of that light, the brightness piercing through that. And while the light is glowing, it really does appear to bleach out the fabric. And the moment you turn it off, the fabric is the color that it always was, the color that it appeared to be before you shined the light through it. When Christ is glowing, that is glory. Glory and glowing and shining in Scripture often are connected concepts. Christ is so glorious then that the garments that he wears are white like snow. His head is white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. Now, number one, this is a lesson in God's glory. But number two, it's also a lesson in God's purity, because so many times in the Bible— Sin is depicted as dirt and stain, and cleanliness is depicted as solid white, white as snow. We're going to share with you a lesson about that in just a moment. So Christ is glowing, he is radiating, his hair appears to be white, his clothing appears to be white, he is glorious. When you look at the snow, when you look at the ice, when you look at the frozen tundra, in your yard after a storm such as that. One thing that I want you to think about is God's glory, how pure and holy God is and how glorious that God is, because that is one of the pictures the Bible uses to describe these immutable attributes of God, His glory, His righteousness, His holiness, etc. Number two, multiple times in the Bible, the concept of salvation forgiveness and redemption is depicted as being washed to be whiter than snow. A great example of this is found in the book of Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though you be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. And I'll just say that when the Bible says that we will be washed whiter than snow, What that has reference to is taking a garment and cleaning the filth off of it so that it is white. This isn't a statement of skin color. None of us, though, in our modern day and age, we call a Caucasian a white person. We're not actually white. We're all varying shades of this same chemical that we possess in our bodies, melanin. We're 
varying shades of this same reddish-brown color. The first man, Adam, was probably reddish in his complexion. The Lord Jesus was certainly darker-complected. When we read about being made white as snow, that doesn't have reference to a person's skin color. The word picture has more to do with a garment that has been stained, and yet it is made white. Wool can be commonly white. The sheep that we have over here that produce the wool are commonly white sheep. As it's sheared and clothing is made from that, if it's not dyed, it remains in that white color. But we have stained our garments, as it were. We are tainted by sin. We are stained by it. And so what the Lord Jesus Christ does through the redemptive work that he offered for us to his Father upon the cross of Calvary, when he that knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, he washes us whiter than snow by the shedding of his blood. Notice the color that we were prior to this was scarlet. Scarlet is the color of blood, and blood symbolizes death. You and I were sinners. We deserved death. And at the same time, red symbolizes the winepress of the wrath of God, the God that we had offended in our sinfulness. And so our sins were as scarlet. We deserved death. We deserved God's wrath. And yet Jesus shed his blood, also scarlet, also crimson, and in the shedding of his blood, he has washed us whiter than snow. He has sprinkled us with his blood, and he has washed us and made us clean. What does he compare the cleanness that we have in Christ to from nature? Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. There's hardly anything cleaner looking than a yard covered in fresh white snow. It just throws a blanket of clean over everything in your yard. And my wife and I were speaking about this as we were watching the world begin to thaw and melt and go back to normal. She remarked that the world just looks so much dirtier after that snow or ice begins to melt and it goes back to the way that it was before. All the various colors that you see in your dormant lawn, perhaps rotting leaves or garbage that had blown up in the breeze, debris from trees where they've dropped their limbs, the world just doesn't look as pleasant after that has melted. That is what the Bible says of you after Jesus has taken away your sin. You are spotless. You are pristine. You have been washed whiter than snow. Lastly, from the book of Job, as we looked at the snow, this particular statement that God himself makes in Job chapter 38 continued coming to mind. And this will be a point regarding the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. Now, it would be impossible in the few minutes that we have remaining to summarize the book of Job for you. This is a very complex book. It is a very interesting book. It's a book that takes much proper right division, as it were, rightly dividing the word of truth. Suffice it to say, very briefly, Satan at the beginning of this book challenges the Almighty that Job, this man that fears God and shuns evil, he only does this because God has hedged him. And if God would take away that hedge, the wicked one asserts, Job will curse God to his face. The Lord suffers that wicked one to do terrible things in Job's life. There's a spiritual warfare at play. 
There are battles that are taking place in Job's life that he never realizes. His children lose their lives. He loses his flocks, his finances. He loses his health. And we find him in sackcloth and in ashes, scraping, scratching the itching boils on his body with a potsherd. Three miserable comforters, friends of his, come to him and tell him that this is happening because he's secretly sinning. He's harboring secret sin, which is why terrible things have happened. They take a true principle that God chastens his children, and they warp it in such a way to apply it to Job's case. Job was not suffering because of anything that he had done. It was a warfare. Job's wife tells him, just go ahead and curse God and die. Throughout this episode, there's many words, many back and forth statements made in this conversation. But eventually, after Job requests an audience with the Almighty, God himself shows up. In Job 38, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man. I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. And then he begins to ask Job questions based upon his creation of the universe. Job, where were you when I created the universe? Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? The earth has a molten core. That's the foundation of the earth. Where were you when I designed that? How wide is that? Who has laid the measurements thereof? Job, tell me how large the earth is. Give me the circumference of the earth. What's the earth fastened upon? Earlier in Job, it says he hangeth the earth upon nothing. The earth exists in space, bound together by the gravity of the bodies that are around it in space. Job explained that to me. How about when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for glory? How about the seas that issued forth as if they had come out of the womb? How about when I made the cloud the garment of the world and a thick darkness a swaddling band for it? But notice this. In Job 38, one of the things that God asks him, Job, out of whose womb came the ice, the hoary frost of heaven? Who hath gendered it? The waters are hid as with a stone. The face of the deep is frozen. One of the things that God asks Job, Job, can you create cold weather? Because God can. But Job certainly cannot. In each of these various statements in this portion of the book of Job, what is being discussed is God's sovereignty and his power over creation. And so God says, Job, when the seas are frozen over as with a stone, when there's frost and there's ice and there's snow, what do you know of that? Do you know where snow comes from? Do you know why it exists? Psalm 147 gives us the answer to that. He sendeth forth his commandment upon earth. His word runneth very swiftly. He giveth snow like wool. He scattereth the hoarfrost like ashes. He casteth forth his ice like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? But listen, he sendeth out his word and melteth them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters flow. God is sovereign over creation and God is sovereign over the weather. That means God is sovereign over the ice. God is sovereign over the snow. And so when we see the ice and the snow, let it serve as a reminder of our sovereign God, the only one who has power over nature. You and I don't know what a day brings, but God has power and control over his creation. As I bring the broadcast today to a close, let me just review the things that we discussed. 
Number one, you and I make plans. We don't know what a day will bring. We certainly don't know what a year will bring. Our lives are as a vapor. So what we should say is, if it is the Lord's will, we shall do this, we shall do that. Number two, there are examples that we can learn as we look out of the world and the heavens declare the glory of God unto us, even in the snowstorms. Number one, that snow that we see is a picture of God's purity. It is a picture of God's glory. Number two, we have been washed wider than that snow through the shedding of the blood of Christ. There's a lesson to be learned about salvation as we look at the snow. And then lastly, number three, as we see the snow, let it remind us that God and God alone is sovereign. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received today's broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. Address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.